The Moviegoer's Guide to the Future, based on the book Films from the Future, The Technology and Morality of Sci-Fi Movies, and read by the author Andrew Maynard. That's me, by the way. Chapter 6, Elysium. On September the 17th, 2011, a small group of social activists occupied Zuccotti Park in New York City. The occupation became the spearhead for the global Occupy movement, protesting a growing disparity between haves and have-nots within society. Two years later, the movie Elysium built on this movement as it sought to reveal the potential injustices of a technologically sophisticated future where a small group of elites live in decadent luxury at the expense of the poor. Elysium is, it has to be said, a rather earnest movie. It deals with big social issues and it takes itself very seriously, to the point where its oversimplistic portrayals of technological innovation and greed-driven social inequity are accompanied by equally simplistic solutions. And yet for all this, it's a movie that shines a light on the potential dangers of new technologies benefiting the rich at the expense of the poor. It also showcases some cool tech which, while implausible in how it's portrayed in the film, nevertheless reflects some quite amazing developments in the real world. In 2011, just a few months before Occupy Wall Street moved into Zuccotti Park, The Economist Joseph Stiglitz wrote in Vanity Fair, and I quote, The top 1% had the best houses, the best educations, the best doctors and the best lifestyles. But there is one thing that money doesn't seem to have bought, an understanding that their fate is bound up with how the other 99% live. Throughout history, this is something that the top 1% eventually do learn. Too late. Stiglitz foreshadowed the Occupy movement, but he also touched on a deeper truth that has resonated through history, that while there is a natural tendency for the rich to live at the expense of the poor this is a recipe for social and economic disaster in the long term. And while he didn't explicitly call out the potential impacts of emerging technologies on social inequity, it's hard to ignore the ways in which science and technology can, if not developed and used responsibly, deepen the divide between those who live comfortable, privileged lives and those who do not. This is a theme that the movie Elysium piles on in spades. In the film, the richer, pampered by every conceivable technological innovation, living lives of luxury in grand mansions on a Beverly Hills-like space habitat, looked after by subservient AI robots and living long, healthy lives in perfect bodies, courtesy of home-based medical pods that could cure every ill and erase every blemish. In contrast... The poor have inherited an earth that has none of these advantages and instead feels more like the impoverished slums of a Brazilian favela or some of the less salubrious parts of LA. And rather than being served by technology, these communities are suppressed by it. Elysium is driven by the social inequities that are sustained and magnified by these technological disparities. But it's the medical pods that lie at the heart of this tale of the 1% versus the 99%. 
These pods can seemingly detect any illness or injury in a patient and treat it in seconds, even down to reconstructing human tissue and bones. It's a dream technology that, in the movie, has conquered sickness and disease and made permanent injuries a thing of the past. But it's also a technology that's only available to citizens of Elysium, the orbiting space habitat that gives the movie its title. Everyone else left on Earth is destined to grapple with outdated technologies and with disease, injury and death, living hard, stressful lives while constantly being reminded of how little they have compared to the people they serve. The medical technology in Elysium is very much used as a metaphor for how technological capabilities in the hands of a few people can amplify the power they have over others. I'm not sure the medical pods are meant to be a realistic portrayal of a future technology, and to be clear, they are not scientifically plausible. Rather, I suspect that they represent an extreme that drives home the message that powerful technologies come with great responsibility. And yet, as we'll see, scientifically implausible as they are, these pods echo some quite amazing developments in 3D tissue and organ construction in the real world that are beginning to radically challenge how we think about some forms of medical treatment. As Elysium opens, we're introduced to Max, played by Maxwell Perry Cotton as a child, a young orphan living in the future slums of Los Angeles, looking up into the sky towards a massive toroidal space habitat. This is Elysium, a technologically advanced space orbital where the uber-rich live in opulent luxury, surrounded by technologies that keep them disease-free, secure, and deeply pampered. In contrast, the 99% who are left on Earth live in dirt, poverty and misery, working long, hard hours under the watchful eye of zero-tolerance autonomous robot law enforcement. Max's dream, and one he shares with his childhood sweetheart Frey, played by Valentina Giron, is to make enough money to move to Elysium. But like so many dreams, it fades into the harsh reality of a life trapped in poverty as he grows up. Here we fast forward to a grown-up Max, played by Mac Damon. Max is still living in the slums of LA. Since we saw him as a child, he's dabbled in some less than legal activities, but is now legitimately employed and is working long hard hours for little pay for the company Armadine. This is the company that supplies much of Elysium's technological needs, together with the AI-based security robots that keep order on Earth. Max is going straight when we catch up with him, but an offhand comment to a security robot leads to him being mercilessly beaten and ending up in hospital with a broken wrist. Here, he's reunited with a grown-up Frey, played by Alice Braga. Frey is now working as a doctor, and as we later discover, has problems of her own. Max wants to renew their relationship, but Frey brushes him off and discourages him from getting involved in her own complicated life. Once his wrist has been seen to, Max is required to visit his parole officer, another humorless autonomous robot, and once again his flippant attitude gets him into trouble. Having finally got through his parole meeting, he arrives late to work and is threatened with dismissal for being tardy. Fortunately for him, Max gets off with a warning and he goes back to making robots designed to suppress the poor and pamper the rich. But when a glitch in the manufacturing process threatens production, he's forced to take a dangerous shortcut to fix it, and receives a lethal dose of radiation in the process. Following the incident, the Armadine robot patches Max up, gives him a bottle of pills to counter the radiation's effects, and calmly tells him that in five days' time, he'll die. 
Meanwhile, Armadine's CEO, John Carlyle, played by William Fitchner, is horrified by the thought of having a sick and incapacitated worker on the premises and responds with a less than caring, does his skin fall off or something? I don't want to replace the bedding, just get him out. Carlyle is a citizen of Elysium, and the person who originally designed the station's operating system, although because of his position with Armadine, he spends a lot of time commuting between Earth and the orbital. As Max's really bad day plays out, we discover that Elysium's defence secretary, Delacour, played by Jodie Foster, is conspiring with Carlyle to oust the orbital's current president and install herself in this position of ultimate power. Carlyle, it transpires, wrote the operating system for all of Elysium, and is still able to hack it. This is a system that defines and oversees all of the orbital's operational and social functions, including who is a citizen and therefore has access to Elysium's facilities, and who is not. It also determines who has the authority to govern the orbital, and who occupies the highest positions of power, including that of president. Because of this jaw-dropping level of vulnerability in the technology, Carlyle is able to write a patch that reconfigures the system, replacing the current president with Delacour. Carlyle configures the patch while on Earth, and securely saves it in his brain using a neural interface. This is, it has to be said, a technology of convenience that supports the movie's narrative, but otherwise makes little sense. And because the patch is so valuable, he adds a lethal security lock which will end up killing anyone who tries to steal it and run it. Meanwhile, Max is dying and he's angry. His only hope of surviving is to get to one of the medical pods on Elysium. And so he makes a deal with old partner in crime Spider, played by Wagner Mora, to smuggle him up to the orbital on one of Spider's illegal immigrant runs. Spider agrees to help Max, but at a price. First, he must agree to steal something from an Elysium citizen that will enable Spider to more successfully circumvent the orbital's defences. Max agrees, but on one condition. He'll only participate in the theft if the mark is Carlyle. Fortunately, an opportunity to jump Carlyle arises almost immediately. In the ensuing hijacking, Carlyle is killed and Max ends up with his Elysium reboot patch in his brain, little realising at the time how dangerous it is. Spider, however, understands all too well what he's stolen and that this is a piece of code that, if executed correctly, could make Elysium and everything it represents accessible to anyone on Earth. In his mind, it's the key to wiping out the social inequity that Elysium and its medical technology in particular represents, and one that could level the social and technological playing field between the orbital and the Earth. But there's a problem. If Spider runs the patch, Max dies. Incensed that Max has interfered with her plans, Delacour dispatches Kruger, played by Charlotte Copley, a psychopathic mercenary, to track him down and reclaim the patch. Max evades Kruger, but sustains serious injuries in the process, and this leads him back to Frey. As Max persuades Frey to treat him, he learns her daughter is dying of leukemia, and just like Max, her only hope is to get to Elysium. Unfortunately, Kruger discovers Frey's connection with Max, and he kidnaps her and her daughter in an attempt to bring him in. 
Kruger is well aware of what's in Max's head and is formulating his own plan for how he could use the patch himself. But for this, he needs Max alive. Having little choice, Max gives himself up and persuades Kruger and his crew to shuttle him, Frey, and her daughter to Elysium by threatening to destroy the patch if they don't. And as they're transported up to the orbital, Spider tracks them and follows behind with his own crew. This being a sci-fi action film, lots of fighting blood and grisly deaths follow. Eventually, though, Frey gets her daughter to one of Elysium's medical units, owning to hit a seemingly insurmountable problem. Because Frey's daughter isn't a registered citizen of Elysium, the machine refuses to treat her. The only solution is for Max to use the patch to reconfigure Elysium systems so they recognize her as a citizen. But the only way he can do this is to be killed in the process. Max insists that Spider make the necessary modifications to the patch and sacrifices himself so that Frey's daughter can live. But it's not just Frey's daughter who benefits. Spider has reconfigured the patch to reclassify everyone on Earth as a citizen of Elysium. And so, as Max dies, the 99% finally have access to all the privileges of the 1% that Elysium represents. As the change in citizenship registers, the Orbital's autonomous systems realize there's a whole planet full of citizens who are sick and suffering below it, and they commit Elysium's extensive resources, which inexplicably include hundreds of medical relief vessels, to assist them. Through Max's sacrifice, the technologies previously used to benefit the rich at the expense of the poor are made available to everyone, and social equity is restored. It has to be said that Elysium is in many ways a rather naive movie. In real life, the roots of social inequity are deeply complex, as are the ways of tackling them, and they're certainly not amenable to simple quick fixes. And throughout the movie, the plausibility of the technologies we see plays second fiddle to the story the film's creators want to tell. Yet despite this, the movie highlights social challenges that are deeply relevant to technological innovation in today's world. And despite its naivety, it gets closer than might be imagined to some of the more disruptive technologies that are now beginning to emerge around us, including reconstructing biological tissues with 3D printers. In 2016, a quite remarkable series of images started to permeate the internet. The images showed what looked like the perfectly formed outer parts of a human ear. But unlike a real ear, this one was emerging as if grown from an iridescent pink liquid held in a laboratory Petri dish. The ear was the product of a technique that scientists around the world have been working on for some years, the ability to quite literally print replacement body parts. Inspired by developments in 3D printing, researchers were intrigued to see if they could achieve the same effects using human cells. The idea was relatively simple. If a matrix of living cells and a permeable but shape-holding material could be formed using a modified 3D printer, it should be possible to build up three-dimensional human tissue samples and even complete organs. Of course, the devil was in the details, as even the simplest tissue samples have a highly complex architecture of capillaries, nerves, connecting tissue, and many different cell types. 
But early enthusiasm for bioprinting 3D tissue samples using sophisticated cell-containing inks or bio-inks paid off, and research in this area is now leading to quite revolutionary technological breakthroughs. And while Elysium-like medical pods that reconstruct damaged bodies in seconds will always be beyond our grasp, 3D printed replacement body parts may not be as far off as we think. The year 2016 might have been a landmark year for bioprinting, but it was far from the first successful attempt to 3D print biological structures. Some of the earliest attempts to use 3D printing technology with biological materials date back to the early 2000s, and by the mid-2000s an increasing number of papers were beginning to appear in the scientific literature on bioprinting. But these early approaches led to materials that were very basic compared to naturally formed tissues and organs. Unlike even the simplest natural tissues, the cartilage that forms the structure of ears for instance, they lacked the fine structure that is inherent in the stuff we're made of. Scientists had begun to make amazing breakthroughs in printing 3D structures that looked like viable body parts, but they lacked the essential ingredients necessary to grow and function as effectively as their biological counterparts. This was only a temporary setback, though, and the 2016 year was proof that the technology was progressing in leaps and bounds. The year, created by Anthony Atala and his colleagues at Wake Forest School of Medicine, was printed from a bio-ink mix of rabbit ear chondrocytes, or cells that form cartilaginous tissue, and a hydrogel that enables a persistent three-dimensional structure to be formed while keeping the cells viable. The shape of the ear was based on a 3D scan of a real ear, and when printed, it looked uncannily like a flesh-and-blood human outer ear. What made it unusual, though, was the inclusion of microscopically fine channels threaded through its structure, allowing nutrients to diffuse to the cells and enabling them to stay alive and multiply. Atala's team effectively demonstrated that it's possible to print simple body parts that remain alive and healthy long after the printing process is finished, and that are potentially usable as transplantable replacements. But despite this, bioprinting continued to be dogged by the extensive challenges of reproducing naturally occurring biological materials, and doing this fast enough to prevent them beginning to die before being completed. It's one thing to be able to print something that looks like a functioning replacement body part, but it's something completely different to bioprint tissue that will behave as well as, if not better than, the biological material it replaces. Part of the challenge here is the sheer complexity of human tissues. Most organs are made up of a finely intertwined matrix of different types of cells, materials and components which work together to ensure they grow, repair themselves and function as they're supposed to. Embedded within this matrix are vital networks of nerves and capillaries that relay information to and from clusters of cells, providing them with the fuel and the nutrients they need to function and remove waste products from them. Without comparable networks, bioprinted parts would remain crude facsimiles of the tissues they were designed to replace. But building such complexity into 3D printed tissues would require a resolution far beyond that of Atala's ear, and an ability to work with multiple tissue types simultaneously. It would also require printing processes so fast that cells don't have time to start dying before the process is complete. These are tough 
challenges. But at least some of them are beginning to be directly addressed in 2018 by the company Prelis Biologics. Prelis is working on a hologram-based 3D bioprinting technology that rather than building up organs layer by layer, near instantaneously creates three-dimensional structures of cells and support materials in a specially prepared liquid suspension. By creating a light hologram within the liquid, the technique forms brighter hotspots where the light-sensitive liquid is cured and set, creating a semi-solid matrix of cells and support material. If the hotspots are a three-dimensional representation of an ear or a kidney, the living architecture for the 3D printed organ can be produced in seconds. But here's the clever bit. Above the resolution of the system, which is a few micrometers, complexity is essentially free, meaning that it can be used to produce extremely complex three-dimensional tissue structures with ease, including embedding capillaries within the organ that's being printed. In other words, we're getting close to a technology that can reproduce the structural complexity of something like a kidney, capillaries and all, in a matter of hours. Reflecting this, Prelis' ultimate goal is being able to print the entire vasculature of a human kidney in 12 hours or less. Whether this technology continues to develop at the current breakneck speed remains to be seen. I'm a little skeptical about how soon we'll be able to print replacement body parts on demand as biology is constantly blindsiding us with just how deeply complex it is. But despite my skepticism, there's no doubt that we're getting closer to being able to print replacement tissues, body parts and even vital organs. And while we're still a world away from the fantastical technology in Elysium, it's shocking how fast we're beginning to catch up. With advances in high-speed, high-resolution, multi-tissue bioprinting, it's conceivable that in a few years it'll be possible to 3D print a replacement kidney or liver or jawbone or skin grafts using a patient's own cells as a starting point. And even if we can only get part of the way towards this, it would revolutionise how we're able to treat diseased bodies and extend someone's quality of life. With kidney disease alone, it's estimated that over 2 million people worldwide depend on dialysis or kidney transplants to stay alive, and the number of people needing a new kidney could be as high as 20 million. The ability to print replacement organs for these people could transform their lives. But why stop there? New livers, new bones, new hearts, new limbs. Once we crack being able to print replacement body parts on demand that are fully biocompatible, fully viable, and act and feel just like their naturally grown counterparts, our world will change. This is quite amazing stuff. In a world where there remains a desperate need for new technologies to counter the ravages of disease and injury, it's a technology that promises to make millions of lives better. And yet, as Elysium reminds us, just because we can cure the sick, that doesn't mean that everyone will benefit. As bioprinting-based medical treatments become available, who will benefit from them? And what are the chances of this leading to a two-tiered society where the rich get to live longer, healthier lives, and the poor get to sit on the sidelines and watch? This is a scenario that already plays out daily with less sophisticated medical technologies. But if bioprinting turns out to be as revolutionary as is promised, it could drive a much bigger social wedge between people who are rich enough and powerful enough to constantly be upgrading their bodies with 3D printed parts and those who are destined to be left struggling in their wake.
This is the scenario that plays out in Elysium, as the inhabitants of the orbital enjoy access to medical facilities that those left on Earth can only dream of. But it's only one of a number of ways in which powerful technologies lead to social disparity in the movie. Another, and one that is near and dear to my professional heart, as it's an area I focused on for many years, is just how risky workplaces can become when their owners put profits before people, regardless of how sophisticated the technology they're producing is. The first job I found myself in as a newly minted Doctor of Philosophy was not in a university lab, but in a government research centre. In September 1992, I joined the British Health and Safety Executive as a research scientist, later moving on to a similar role with the US National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. And for the next 13 years, I became deeply engaged in workplace safety. I was a full-on bench scientist for many of these years, conducting and leading lab-based research on airborne dust exposure, which, trust me, is more interesting than it sounds. But I also worked closely with health and safety professionals, as well as manufacturers and workers, and this gave me a deep appreciation of the risks that many people face in the places where they work, even when those workplaces use and produce advanced technologies. It's often assumed that technology innovation makes workplaces cleaner and safer places to be. This, sadly, is a myth. And it's one that I suspect is propagated in part by images of pristine clean rooms and sleek automated production lines. In many cases, of course, new technologies have led to improved working conditions. Yet the reality is that manufacturing at scale is often dirty and dangerous, even if the technology being manufactured is not. And this is one area where Elysium does a surprisingly good job of reflecting the reality that no matter how advanced our technologies are, there'll still be someone slaving away somewhere in an unsafe workplace to make the products we use if we're not careful. Of course, we've known for thousands of years that working for a living can be bad for your health, especially if you mine materials out of the ground, grow produce, or manufacture materials and products. And partly because of this, there's a long history of privileged groups using less privileged people to do their dirty work for them. It wasn't the rich ruling classes that got their hands dirty building the Egyptian pyramids or Roman plumbing systems, or who mined the coal that drove the Industrial Revolution. Rather, it was those who had little choice but to sacrifice their health and longevity in order to put food on the table for their families. It would be pleasant to think that we live in more enlightened times where no one has to take unnecessary risks to earn a living wage. Sadly, this is not the case. Elysium may be implausibly futuristic in some respects, but it's right on the nose with its message that even in a technologically advanced future, there'll still be dirty, dangerous jobs and rich people who are more than willing to pay poorer people to do them. Thankfully, there have been substantial improvements in working conditions over the past 100 years or so, in some countries at least. This has been spurred on by a growing realisation of just how socially and economically harmful it can be to treat workers badly. But this is a surprisingly recent development in human history, and one where new technologies have not always been synonymous with better working conditions. In 1977, my grandfather died of pneumoconiosis after decades of working as a coal miner. 
Even though he'd long moved on from working down the pit, the coal dust he'd breathed day in and day out had done its damage, and the progressive and irreversible scarring that resulted from it eventually killed him. Coal miners' pneumoconiosis, or black lung, is caused by the constant inhalation of fine, insoluble dust particles and a gradual and progressive deterioration of the lungs as they become inflamed and scarred. It's a disease that has most likely plagued coal miners for centuries, yet it wasn't until the early to mid-1900s, at the tail end of the Industrial Revolution, that it began to be recognised as a serious occupational disease. Despite massive advances in technological innovation over the previous century, uncertainty in the science behind black lung delayed action on this occupational killer. This was an uncertainty that suited the mine owners and one that they seemed to be in no hurry to address. In the 1800s and the early 1900s, coal was what fueled the Industrial Revolution and mining corporations and manufacturers couldn't afford to acknowledge that they might have a problem. It wasn't until the 1940s in the UK that substantial steps were taken to improve workplace conditions down mines, following a growing recognition of how serious a challenge lung disease was amongst miners. Even then, pneumoconiosis continued to be an issue. And in the 1990s, 50 years after those first substantive steps to improve working conditions, I became involved in a new wave of efforts to address occupational lung disease in coal mines. The mines I visited back then, all in the northeast of England, were dusty, but not oppressively so. Yet there was a palpable tension between trying to comply with exposure regulations and struggling to remain solvent. In 1991, similar tensions had led to a scandal in the US coal mining industry when it was discovered that dust was either being removed from samples designed to monitor exposure, or the samplers were being intentionally misused. The intent was to make it look as if dusty mines were complying with federal regulations, even if they weren't in compliance, in an attempt to put profits over the lives of those mining the coal. Over 800 mines were implicated in the tampering scam, and the proposed fines that resulted exceeded $6 million. Similar concerns prompted some of my work in British coal mines, and one of my last visits down an English pit was to ensure samples weren't being messed with. Thankfully, they weren't. The sad reality, though, was that in this industry, and despite massive strides in understanding how to use technology to protect worker health, it was all too easy to cut corners in order to increase production. And even more sadly, despite living in one of the most advanced technological ages in human history, coal miners' pneumoconiosis is once again on the rise. In spite of all the technological breakthroughs we're surrounded by, companies are still sending people to work in environments that could severely shorten their lives while not taking the necessary steps to make them safer so that others can live more comfortably. Coal mining is, of course, just one example of a workplace where trade-offs are made between safety and productivity. In the US alone, there are close to 5,000 workplace-related fatalities a year and in excess of 140,000 cases of workplace illness. In 2014, Dukat Kala and his colleagues published estimates of the global burden of injury and illness at work. From their analysis, there were 2.3 million workplace-related deaths globally in 2012, with 2 million of these linked to occupational disease. These are high numbers, and certainly not what might be hoped for in a technologically advanced society. 
Yet while technological innovation has made some workplaces safer, it's also displaced people into potentially more harmful working conditions. And the harsh reality is that for many people, a dangerous job is better than no job at all. This is perhaps seen most clearly in the displacement of manufacturing to countries where wages are lower, regulations are weaker, and working conditions are poorer than they are in more affluent economies. For instance, in the manufacturing of clothing or electronics. Here, rather than saving lives, innovation is leading to people being potentially put in harm's way to satisfy a growing demand for the latest technologies. Even with new and emerging technologies, for instance, the production of new materials using nanotechnology or the use of genetically modified microbes to mass-produce chemicals in vast bioreactors, there is relatively little correlation between the sophistication of the technology and the safety of the environment in which it's used. On the contrary, the more powerful the technologies we produce, the more opportunities there are for them to harm the first tier of people who come into contact with them, which includes the people who manufacture them and in turn use them in manufacturing. This has been seen in an intense global focus on the workplace health risks of producing and using engineered nanomaterials, a topic we'll come back to in Chapter 10 and The Man in the White Suit, and a realisation that one of the greatest threats to workplace safety is not a lack of technological innovation, but ignorance of what might go wrong with novel technologies. But even where there is not a lack of understanding, greed and human nature continue to jeopardise workers' health. In the case of Elysium, this trade-off between profit and people is painfully clear. Max's occupational accident has all the hallmarks of occurring within a company that sees its workforce as disposable despite the fact that they're producing high-tech goods. The additional irony here is that these goods are robots that are designed to further suppress the earthbound population. In this future society, the polarisation between rich and poor has become so extreme that the poor have precious few rights remaining as they serve the lifestyles of the rich. How likely is this? If we don't take workplace health and safety seriously and the broader issues of social justice that it's a part of, I'm sad to say that it's pretty likely. The good news is that an increasing number of companies recognise these dangers and are diligently implementing policies that go beyond regulatory requirements in order to ensure a healthy workplace. And they do this with good reason. The economics of accident and disease prevention make good business sense, as do the economics of fostering a happy and thriving workforce. Emerging thinking around concepts like corporate social responsibility and responsible innovation help here. So does innovative corporate leadership that actively strives to reduce social inequity and serve the needs of those who work for them. But the fiscal temptation to use cheap labour is sometimes a tough one to resist, especially when some people are willing to work for less and cut corners to get ahead of their peers. This is where preventing a future disposable workforce becomes the responsibility of everyone, not just employers or regulators. This is something of a moot point in Elysium, though, as Max and his fellow workers don't have much of a choice in where they work and what they're required to do to make ends meet. Despite living in a highly automated future, they have work, but it's not necessarily the work they would choose given the chance. For them, automation didn't deprive them of a job, but it did deprive them of choice. How realistic a reflection this is of the real world is debatable. This is, after all, Hollywood. 
Yet in one form or another, new technologies that lead to future automation are a growing issue within today's society. In September 2017, the Pew Research Center released the results of a comprehensive survey of public attitudes in the U.S. towards robots and automation. The results should be taken with a pinch of salt, as these were opinions rather than predictions, and they come with all the usual challenges associated with asking people to predict the future. Yet they're quite revealing when it comes to what people think about automation. Some of the results aren't too surprising. For instance, some people who responded were worried about the prospect of robots replacing them in the future. And respondents generally didn't like the idea of computers deciding who to hire and who not to. Other results in the survey were more surprising. For example, 56% of participants would not want to ride in a driverless vehicle. And of these, safety concerns were uppermost in their reasoning. And this is despite safety being one of the big arguments made for getting rid of human drivers. As part of the survey, participants were asked what they thought the impacts of robots and computers would be on inequality. This was specifically framed in terms of what the outcomes would be if automation replaced many of the jobs currently done by people. Perhaps not surprisingly, the majority of participants, 76%, thought that increasing automation of jobs would increase inequality. How this stacks up to how things are actually likely to play out is complex. As Eric Brynjolfsson and Andrew McAfee point out in their 2016 bestseller, The Second Machine Age, Automation is radically changing the way we live and the work we do. The question that is challenging experts like Bryn Johnson and McAfee, though, is whether this will lead to a net reduction in jobs or simply a change in the types of jobs people do. And it's not an easy one to answer. Looking back over the recent history of automation, there have been pivotal shifts in the types of jobs available to people. There have also been industries that have been largely stripped of human labour. In the 1800s, this was at the root of the Luddite movement, something we'll revisit in Chapter 9, as textile artisans began to see their skills being replaced by machines and their livelihoods taken away. And since then, every wave of automation has led to further job losses. But at the same time, new jobs have been created. When I was finishing high school and going through the tedium of career advice, many of the jobs that people now do hadn't even been invented. Web designer, app coder, Uber driver, cloud computing expert, YouTube creator, smart city designer, microfinance manager, and so on. None of these appeared in the brochures. I was encouraged to digest. There's no question that over the past few decades, the job market has radically changed, and this has been driven by technological innovation and to a large extent by automation. To some, this suggests that we're nowhere near the limit of our capacity to create new things that people can and will pay for. And all that automation does is create new opportunities for enterprising humans to make money. This is not a universally held view, and there are many economists who worry that emerging technologies will lead to a serious net reduction in jobs. From the Pew survey, many others had the same concerns, and while this is based on impressions and gut feeling rather than hard evidence, it's probably justified in one respect. 
increasing automation will replace many of the jobs people do today, and unless they have the capacity to develop new skills and switch jobs and career paths, this will lead to job losses. And this in turn leads us to the challenge of ensuring people have access to the educational resources they need as technological innovation continues to transform the world around us. Education is one of those issues that is both critical to social and economic growth and at the same time deeply contentious. Everyone, it seems, has an opinion on what a good education is and how we should be educating people. As a teacher and someone who's married to one, it's hard to escape the deeply entrenched opinions and politics that surround education and the sheer number of people who think they know what's best, whether they know what they're talking about or not. And yet, despite all of the politicking, there is one cold hard truth as we develop increasingly sophisticated technologies. If our educational thinking, approaches and resources don't keep up with the future we're creating, people are going to suffer as a result. How to address this, of course, is challenging. But there are an increasing number of initiatives to address the emerging educational needs of the industrial and technological revolution we're in. In my own institution at Arizona State University, for instance, there's a growing recognition that bricks-and-mortar universities simply don't have the capacity to serve the needs of a growing global population that's hungry to develop the knowledge they need to thrive. In a future where unique skills are needed to ride the wave of radical technological change, we're going to need equally radical innovation in how over 7 billion people are going to acquire these skills. Online learning is beginning to fill some of the gaps here, but this is just a start. If we're going to avoid increasing automation and technological complexity marginalising a growing number of people, we're going to need to start thinking hard and fast about what we teach, how we teach, and who has access to it. More than this, we're going to have to recalibrate our thinking on what we mean by education in the first place. In 2005, a new video sharing platform was unleashed onto the world. Now, YouTube is the second largest search engine globally and the third most visited site after Google and Facebook. It's also where more and more people are turning to learn what they need in order to succeed. Over a billion hours of YouTube are watched every day, and while much of this is not educational content, a surprising amount is. As an educator, I must confess to being somewhat leery of YouTube, despite using the platform extensively myself. It remains a wild west of educational content where anyone can try to convince you of anything, whether it's right or wrong. And yet YouTube is increasingly where people go to learn, whether it's how to tie a bow tie, put on makeup, plumb a sink, or ice an interview. This is a platform where people are sharing what they know with others outside of the barriers, constraints, and politics of formal education. And it's where users are learning how to learn at their own pace and on their own terms. YouTube and online video sharing platforms more broadly are a grassroots revolution in casual, user-directed learning, and one that I suspect is only going to increase in relevance as people discover they need new skills and new knowledge to succeed in what they're doing. Of course, YouTube videos are no substitute for a formal education. There's a depth and quality to learning from professionals within a structured environment that still has substantial value. 
And yet there is a deep desire amongst many people to learn on their own terms and to develop the knowledge and skills they need when they need them that isn't being met by formal educators. And while educational establishments are trying to meet at least some of these needs with innovations like massive open online courses or MOOCs and micro-credentials, they're still barely connecting with what people are looking for. As YouTube and other video sharing platforms democratize learning, how can we ensure that users have access to material that is useful to them and that this material is trustworthy? The latter question in particular is a tough one, as pretty much anyone can upload their own content onto YouTube. Yet over the past several years, there's been a trend towards trusted content creators providing high quality educational material on the platform. In 2011, author John Green and his brother Hank launched the YouTube channels Crash Course and SciShow. Even though the Green brothers were not educators in the formal sense, they set out to make rigorous, relevant and engaging educational content available to anyone with YouTube access. And they succeeded phenomenally. As of this writing, between them, the two channels have attracted nearly one and three quarter billion views. But it's not just the views that are important here. The content on these channels is well-researched and well-presented. It is, whichever way you look at it, great educational material. And it's trouncing what's being offered by some more formal educators. Crash Course and SciShow are part of a growing trend in casual learning content on YouTube that's reaching billions of people and is transforming how and where people develop the knowledge and skills they need. And yet, formal educational establishments and leading subject experts are largely absent from this trend. This, to me, is a glaring missed opportunity, and one that my colleagues in universities around the world need to respond to. As the pace of innovation continues to increase, people are going to increasingly turn to platforms like YouTube to learn what they need in order to keep up. And while content providers like the Green Brothers and their teams are doing a fantastic job, if even a small number of savvy academic experts followed their lead, we would have the opportunity to massively expand the quality, quantity and accessibility of learning materials on video sharing platforms. If experts and educators can be galvanized to embrace this new form of user-driven online learning, we could be on the cusp of an unprecedented democratization of education. Such radical access to knowledge and learning could help reduce social inequity in the future as it enables anyone to acquire the skills they need to succeed. Done right, knowledge will no longer be the domain of those rich enough to afford it or privileged enough to use it, but will be there for anyone who wants it. Of course, Education alone is not the answer to social inequity, and avoiding a future that mirrors that depicted in Elysium will also require a deep commitment to developing, using and governing new technologies responsibly and ethically. Yet meaningful access to knowledge and understanding for all is part of the bedrock on which social equity is built, and we ignore it at our peril, especially as we'll see in our next movie, Ghost in the Shell, where we begin to create technologies that push conventional understanding to the limit. The Moviegoer's Guide to the Future is based on the book Films from the Future, The Technology and Morality of Sci-Fi Movies and is read by the author Andrew Maynard.